Hallowed Ground, a podcast about place. Season 1, Episode 1, Joseph of Arimathea. While reading about the current Ukraine-Russia conflict, I happened upon an article detailing Christianity in the Ukraine region, a fascinating mix of ancient traditions. Primarily, Ukrainian Christianity consists of Eastern Orthodox churches, or those Catholic churches in full communion with Rome. Christianity in Ukraine stretches back to the first centuries of the history of Christianity and the Apostolic Age, with mission trips along the Black Sea. The first historically documented Christian community came from the 9th century on the Crimean Peninsula, and it is certain Christian missionaries were bringing people to faith many centuries before this tantalizingly. Legend has it that St. Andrew even ascended the hills of Kiev, which reminds me of one beloved local legend here in the West Country that suggested St. Joseph of Arimathea travel to Britain and Glastonbury. St. Andrew of the Black Sea. Andrew was one of the twelve apostles. He was the brother of Peter and both were fishermen. In the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, they were both called together, abandoning their jobs to become fishers of men. In Luke, he is named along with the other 11 apostles, who were selected out of a broader group of disciples. The Chronicle of Nestor recorded Andrew as he preached along the Black Sea and the Dnieper River as far as Kiev. From there, it is said, he travelled to Novgorod, He became a patron saint of Ukraine, Romania and Russia. Did Andrew truly reach the Black Sea? Possibly not, but maybe. In this episode of Hallowed Ground, we shall explore another legend of an evangelist leaving the Holy Land for far-flung reaches of the known world, Joseph of Arimathea. We learn relatively little from the New Testament about the character of St. Joseph. However, his significance is so great that he is mentioned in all four canonical Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Matthew's Gospel records Joseph's role thus. I read from the Douay Reims version of the Holy Bible. Among whom was Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And when it was evening, there came a certain rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded that the body should be delivered. 
and Joseph taken the body, wrapped it up in a clean linen cloth, and he laid it in his own new monument, which he had hewed out of a rock. And he rolled a great stone to the door of the monument and went his way. Joseph was an important member of the Sanhedrin, the High Jewish Council of Jerusalem. But as a disciple of Jesus Christ, he had to go into hiding. What happened to St. Joseph afterwards, after this vital role in the Passion story? The New Testament records no more details of his life, and there are no historical records deemed reliable that could shed light on the rest of his story. Still, mythology, folklore, legend and romances have been created and retold, which provide a great many alternative narratives of his final years. Perhaps the earliest of these myths is that in the time of Charles the Great, when barbarians had laid siege to the Holy Land, the patriarch of Jerusalem, Saint Joseph's body, now revered to an abbey in France, where it disappeared, stolen perhaps by overzealous pilgrims. One chronicler in the Annales Ecclesiastici by Cardinal Caesar Baronius of the 16th century suggests that in the year AD 48, the Jewish leadership, angry towards Lazarus, Mary Magdalene, Martha, Joseph of Arimathea, and other early followers of Jesus Christ, put them onto a ship without sails. But by God's intervention, they were safely carried across the sea to Marseille, France. From here, legend records, they travelled on to the British Isles. St. Joseph also appears in the apocryphal Gospel of Nicodemus, also known as the Acts of Pilate, in which we read that because he had asked for the body of Jesus, he was put into prison by the Jews, from which he was delivered by our Lord himself on the night of the resurrection. Still another story tells how he was again imprisoned for 40 years because he continued to preach the gospel in Jerusalem, much to the annoyance of religious authorities and that during that time he was miraculously sustained by light and food from heaven. This story was incorporated into the famous legend of the Holy Grail, the dish or cup used at the Last Supper, which Saint Joseph is said to have brought to Britain. In this legend, there is no mention of Glastonbury specifically, but from Glastonbury itself, we have another account of the coming of Joseph to Britain. It is to be found in the first chapter of William of Malmesbury's book entitled Concerning the Antiquity of the Church of Glastonbury, written about AD 1130. It is, however, doubtful whether William really wrote the chapter. The earliest copy of the book dates from about AD 1250, and so it was probably added after his death by some other writer. Still. It states that during the persecution of the church in Jerusalem, when St. Stephen was martyred, its members were dispersed. St. Philip, the apostle, came to France, where he converted many to the faith. He then chose 12 from among his followers and sent them out to evangelise Britain in AD 63, appointing as their leader his closest friend, Joseph of Arimathea. During this mission, the king of Celtic Britain Arvergius refused to accept the gospel at this time, but was agreeable enough to their cause 
to give them the island of Innes Rhythm, or the Isle of Avalon, on which the town of Glastonbury is now situated. He also presented to each of them a portion of land, now known as the Twelve Hides. It was here they built a church of wattles, and here they dwelt for the rest of their lives. Did St Joseph come to Glastonbury in the first century AD and establish the first ever Christian community in Britain? Did he receive a gift of 12 hides of land on which to establish his monastic community? And what form did that early community take? While it could be pure mythology, there are enough tantalising clues that, at the very least, missionaries were active in Celtic Britain in those first few decades AD. Another part of the legend is that when St Joseph arrived at Glastonbury, he planted his staff on Weiriol Hill below the Tor. Like Aaron's rod in the Bible, it miraculously took root and became a bush. This is the origin of the legend of the Glastonbury thorn. A thorn bush still exists to this day, and while it has been restored with fresh cutting since, these are said to be ancestors of the original thorn. Furthermore, John of Glastonbury wrote a history of Glastonbury Abbey around AD 1400. He adds information taken from the work of British bard Melchinus, who lived in the 6th century. Intriguingly, this passage states that St Joseph of Arimathea was buried on the Isle of Avalon itself, in a marble tomb to the south of a church dedicated to the Blessed Virgin. In the tomb, it was said, there were also, quotes, two cruets, white and silver, filled with the blood and sweat of Jesus. It is quoted in support of a general belief that St Joseph was buried in the monk's cemetery. A fruitless search for these relics may have taken place. Father William Good, a Jesuit born in Glastonbury in AD 1527, records as such. As a boy, he served Mass at St Joseph's Chapel shortly before the dissolution of the monasteries. He said, The monks never knew for certain the place of the saint's burial or pointed it out. The body was hidden carefully, either at Glastonbury or on a hill near Montacute called Hampden Hill. But a failure to find the body made no difference to the growing legend of St Joseph and Glastonbury. Countless pilgrimages were made to a stone image of the saint in the crypt beneath the chapel of Our Lady. This crypt, known as St Joseph's Chapel, was constructed by Abbot Beer around AD 1500. Certain images of the saint survive. For instance, in the 15th century, glass of the east window of Langport Church in Somerset nearby, in which he is shown carrying the symbolic cruet, just as uh, Dunstan was to be recognised by the goldsmith's pincers, which he held in his hand. As a leading light of the High Jewish Council in Jerusalem, Joseph would have been a man of great reading. The Holy Land was a busy business location with trading routes all along the Mediterranean Sea and beyond. Meanwhile, the west of England, especially what is now Devon and Cornwall, produced large quantities of tin, which was an important metal in great demand for bronze statues and armour. Could Joseph have been a metals trader who travelled widely across the Roman Empire, perhaps conducting business trips to the West Country in England? Whether or not any of this is true, it is a historical fact that Glastonbury was the site of a very ancient Christian settlement. But, 
The most tantalizing variation of the legend does not concern Andrew himself, but Jesus Christ. It is said that the young Jesus, before he began his ministry, also visited Britain. This potential visit of St. Joseph to England is referenced in poet William Blake's Jerusalem with the immortal verse, and did those feet in ancient time, which was also the poem's original title. Blake wrote the poem in 1808, but it was not until it was popularised in 1916 by England's then poet laureate Robert Bridges that it became a well-known and hugely popular poem. At the same time, the composer Hubert Parry set the poem to music. Both the song and the original verse have been known as Jerusalem ever since. And did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountains green? And was the holy Lamb of God on England's pleasant pastures seen? And did the countenance divine shine forth upon our clouded hills? And was Jerusalem builded here? Among these dark satanic mills. Nowadays, the poem is seen as an alternative national anthem, and many Britons hold the view that it should become the official one, displacing God Save the Queen, which, it is often complained, is something of a dirge. Blake's Jerusalem is sung heartily at international rugby matches and is often taken as a straightforward song of patriotism. This was, however, not the poet's intention. Rather, he muses on the changes wrought on the fabric of British life by the ravages of the Industrial Revolution, which for Blake was almost wholly a negative national transformation. Changes in human society are likened to the changes brought by the end of nomadic living and the creation of more complex and, Blake might suggest, stifling patterns of control. Certainly, the apostles and early followers of Jesus Christ were essentially nomadic as they travelled long distances to bring the faith to far-flung corners of the known world, be it the Black Sea and St Andrew, or Glastonbury and St Joseph. William Blake seeks to evoke a nostalgic sadness in readers and romanticise a more simple time. It is a yearning many people feel now, as we are increasingly ensnared by new apparatus of technological control, watched over by ever more sophisticated surveillance, and the tactile, tangible interaction with place, with locality, with the ground beneath our feet, demoted, and an overwhelming bombardment by the global. The fact that we, in the present day, experience such a nostalgic reflection, raises a question of what that yearning must have been like at the beginning of the 19th century, this dawn of the Industrial Revolution. Did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountains green? Who can say? But incredibly ancient missions and communities took root in Britain many centuries before she became officially Christian. Good night. Hallowed Ground a podcast about place.